Amen. Good morning, church, and great to see you all. Healthy, wealthy, and wise, I assume. So good to see you here and gathered in the name of Jesus and uh, demonstrating our love for him and uh, our love for one another every Sunday when we gather together. Now, I want to take a moment of privilege and brag on my Sunday school class. So our class has been in existence, I, I don't know, maybe three years or so. I, I'm not quite sure how long. But to date, we have already sent back into the Sunday school ministry seven full-time workers who minister every Sunday in teaching Sunday school that have come from our class. Go and do thou likewise. Amen. I'm just, I'm extremely proud of that uh, group of people that uh, they, they've done two things. One, they endure me twice every Sunday. And when we had Sunday evening worship three times every Sunday, that's, well, there are trials and tribulations for us all. And uh, they have done that. But also they've taken seriously the call of the gospel and to be involved in serving. You can never grow in the Lord until you get out there and serve the Lord. And so they have done that, and not just some incidental ministry, but a dedication to minister to uh, children through the teaching of God's Word. And uh, so I uh, just wanted to go ahead and brag on those people. When uh, sometimes you catch people doing what's right, you want to let them know, right? And you can figure out uh, which ones they are if you want to. And if you can't figure it out, let me know, and I'll tell you who they are. All right? Now, I want to... Uh, preach to the pastor today so y'all can relax let's take it easy now here's uh here's what's important for for you to know Uh, number one pastors that preach topically uh every sermon is uh, one of those where you're where he's trying to say something to you about right now um and so he picks out what he thinks is the most recent uh, incident to address or he may pick out uh, something that has been well they put it this way God has laid it on their heart and so they do well you have grown up with that kind of thing and so you think every sermon that I'm preaching that there is some kind of covert coding going on underneath and you're trying to decode and figure out what is he doing Well, actually, my approach is different. I just take the Bible and go through it. And uh, it's really a novel idea. It's like, well, what people used to do. And and so when you get to a a passage of Scripture like this, when I'm preaching about the qualifications of a pastor, those of you that are addicted to the sugar sticks of topical preaching, you're sitting there thinking, well, what's what's he getting ready to do? I'm not getting ready to do anything. I'm just preaching the Bible. And here's the thing that you do know. Secondly, though, you do need to know this, that you are being prepared for something. I I don't know if it's next week, next year, or three weeks from now, or 12 years from now. I have no idea. But one of these days, you will, as a congregation, get the opportunity to choose a new pastor. Now, everybody can say amen all together. Amen. Yes, amen. And so you get that opportunity. You need to know what in the world you're doing. You, you need, and you need to know ahead of time. You don't, you don't train to be a, a firefighter when you see the first fire pop up. You want to be ready ahead of time. And so as we work through the whole counsel of God, you will have a, a readiness for those kinds of things, either at this church or some other church. Um, church I'm uh I'm old I'm I'm 57 and that is no you people with normal lives you don't know what that means it's like dog years if you're a pastor yeah you every every week is a lot of mileage on you and um and so you know uh I've I've got plenty left in the tank but at the same time uh we want to prepare ourselves to do things the right way and we do that by being familiar with the Word of God. Now, you may, one of these days, like, I don't remember what, what he said. I don't remember. Here's what you will remember. 
but it was in the Bible. That's what you'll remember about me. It was in the Bible. Okay, and you'll be able to find it. And so we, we want to talk about the profile of a pastor today. And so some of you, uh, I, I'm going to pick on some of my um, former Methodist friends, and you all know who you are. And believe me, it's not just one family. But you come from a, a denominational hierarchy that guides or controls its pastors. And you come over to the Baptist rank and you realize Dear Lord, there's nobody over him. What might he do? Well, I would say to you, um, it's, it's a lot more trouble trying to keep you in line than it is keeping me in line. But just believe me on that. So you think that, man, he, he, Baptist pastors must have written the Leonard Skinner song, Free Bird. We just do whatever we want. Anytime we want to. That's not the case. We are biblicists. And we hold ourselves to the standard of the Bible. And not only that. The congregation itself holds us to the standard of the Bible. Do not ever give up the Bible in favor of some group of people that supposedly know better. It just, it just, I'm just saying to you, try the Bible on for a while. It seems to work. It seems to take care of everything. And so the scripture, you know, I, you know, um, some of you are really tender-footed people. And uh, my sarcastic humor just really hurts your feelings. And uh, we have a committee we're appointing to that. And... Another sarcastic remark. Wow, I gotta stop. Okay, really love you in Jesus, but come on, y'all. Life is really hard out there. Let's uh, let's let's give each other a little bit of slack. I cannot help it that my personality is warped. I grew up that way. Uh, it's the way rednecks are. Now, have you ever seen? You may not have, but you might remember it from your own congregation. But have you ever seen those profiles? Of churches seeking pastors. Have you ever seen those things? Whoa. I mean Jesus couldn't do it. So they, they're, they're like. We want a, an experienced pastor. With 20 years of experience. But no more than 32 years old. We, you know, we want his wife to be well put together. But able to take care of a family. On a shoestring budget. And we want him to work 60 hours a week for half pay. You, you've seen these things, right? You've seen them. And uh, you, you, you take a look at those, you think, wow, uh, we want a pastor who spends many hours in the nursing homes, but also constantly mentors young families. We want a pastor who preaches deep doctrinal sermons in 20 minutes or less. We want him to be in the office eight hours a day, but always in the community. We want a pastor who takes a strong stand against sin, but is quiet spoken. All of this stuff, we, we want a pastor who parts his hair on the left side, but sort of down the middle. They're just impossible. Do you know where that stupid stuff comes from? Let me just go ahead and tell you. Let me help you. Let me help you now. And some of you are going to get your feelings hurt because you've participated in this before. Well, we're going to let bygones be bygones. Let's talk about the future. Here's where these stupid things come from. When you take some kind of idiotic poll of the church, what kind of pastor do you want? And so people start writing things down or start checking off boxes. We want one who's gifted in mercy. Oh, we want one who is gifted in teaching. And you put all that stuff together, and there is no man on the planet that can possibly fulfill that conglomeration of massive opinions that uninformed church members have. What about this? It's too late now, but the next time, look for somebody that fulfills the biblical requirements, okay? I mean, wouldn't that be something? I have, I have never 
I have never had a church that has ever come to me and taken this section of scripture and say, Pastor, can we walk through this with you? And you tell us if this is you or not. And then call your references and say, we were just looking at 1 Timothy 3. Do you think this man fits that? We, we, we don't, they ask all kinds of crazy questions. It's funny. I mean, they end up knowing your shoe size. They, they, they end up, you get fingerprinted. You get investigated. They ask about your banking account. They know how much debt you have or don't have. All kinds of things. And the whole time they're lying to you, by the way. You know, as a pastor, here's what you feel like. You're, you're sitting there with a the pulpit committee and you're thinking, wow, so this is your representative liars. Okay, we got it. I'm teasing a little bit. But they don't tell you anything. You can't get anything out of them. Boy, they, they've made a pact. Don't tell, them, don't tell them about, you know, the skeletons in the closet. You know, it might scare them off. And so, but, but churches are bad about this. And so I, what I'm trying to do today is to say to you, I don't know what all you've done in the past. Uh, what we did here when we came here was a blur. Um, some of you have repented of your participation in bringing us here. And so you're right with Jesus now, okay? Uh, but uh, here we are, right? So here we are. And, and so this is what I want you to do. I'm, I'm, I'm picking at you and teasing you greatly, but, but in all seriousness now, seriousness now, here's the thing. I want you to take what the Bible says now, and I want you to really do two things with it. One, I want you to expect this from me and the pastoral staff. And secondly, when the time comes and you have to replace a pastoral staff member, and uh, a couple of them, if they don't straighten up, it could be next week, but... but it, when, you, when you have to replace a pastoral staff member, go here first. Go to the scripture first. Look for that first and foremost. All pastors are quirky and weird. You just, you're just human. And so nobody's personality will fit yours just right. Nobody's sense of humor will be just right. And Nobody's tone of voice will be just right. And, and, and some are too outgoing and some are not outgoing enough and all of those things. And there's more of that kind of evaluation that goes on with churches rather than this. And so let's take a look at the scriptures, okay? So of, of all things, I, just, I, I think I was asking my, uh, our pastoral staff this week. I said, you know, what, what would you say about our church that is like characteristic? If you, if you had to say to the community, this is what our church is like. Here's what they came up with. Our church loves the Bible. Church, I just want to tell you, that was a blessing to my soul. That's what you're supposed to do. Love the scriptures. If you love the scriptures, they'll lead you to Jesus and cause you to love him more and cause you to love one another more and even help you get a better pastor next time. Okay, so there's hope here. All right, so let's take a look at it. First of all, uh, Paul says to, to Timothy, talking about pastors and elders, he says, now, uh, you need to take a look at his personal integrity. His personal integrity. Now look, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And so here's what we have is these verses, by and large, talk about the personal integrity of the pastor. Now, when you look in verse 1, it says that if anyone aspires to the office of, of the overseer, and the overseer here is uh, sometimes you, you may have uh, the King James Bible, and it translates it as bishop, which is it's the same thing. So pastor, overseer, elder, bishop, those words are used interchangeably in the scripture. There's not a hierarchy here. There's not priest and then bishop and then archbishop and cardinal and pope. That, that hierarchy doesn't exist in the New Testament. What is addressed in the New Testament is what is a, a pastor supposed to be. And so it, it tells us here that if you aspire to the office of the pastor, now what does it mean to aspire? 
It doesn't mean that you have this selfish motivation to become a pastor. To aspire uh, speaks of the, the outward, the outward working of the pastor. It means that you're taking the steps, the necessary steps to fulfill the office. We would say preparation. The person who's taken steps to prepare for the ministry, then it says, desires a noble task. And the word desires means he has an inner compulsion. So it's talking about two things here. The outward steps are being taken and the inward compulsion that tells you you can do no other. You have no other choice in life, son. This is you. This is what you must do. So those two things must be together. What I've seen in my day is really one or two of those things being in place and people trying to be a pastor and they don't they don't do well in the first situation when they won't prepare their ignorance on fire I mean they may have a lot of fire and people like wow they're really excited but they don't say anything why because they haven't prepared sometimes people say oh they just have a different preaching style no sir that's not preaching that's just getting on my platform and flailing your arms that's not preaching the bible how much more clear do I need to be about that? Okay, so th- that kind of thing is lack of preparation. And you have people that think, I mean, I-, I don't know if that's still alive in this neck of the woods, but where I'm from, being prepared for the ministry is almost antichrist. If you're back up in the sticks, back up in the holler, back up in there, and, and you have gone to Bible college at Clear Creek or something, They almost take it you've disqualified yourself for the ministry because you're not trusting the Holy Spirit. What what does the Bible say for the pastor? He should be taking steps to prepare. Study to show yourself approved, a workman unto God that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible says to preach the word. Don't give lectures. Don't give motivational speeches. Don't tell a bunch of jokes. Preach the word. And in order to do that rightly, you better learn from some men that know how to do it. And so I've seen people that just won't prepare. Oh man, I used to teach pastors in seminary extension in Cincinnati. Oh, you talk about maddening. I just wanted to bash my face against a brick wall. You can't tell them anything. It's hard. You know the other group that's hard to teach? Teachers. They're hard to teach. And so we, we want, as a, as a pastor, you've got to be teachable. You've got to be a person that's willing to learn. I'm constantly learning. My wife is always, here's, here's a question, number one question for my wife. What are you reading now? <laughs> what are you reading now? And, and so I've talked her into reading a Puritan paperback. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to see how this goes. It's a second book I've requested her to read, and she's going to do it, I think. So we're doing it, but what are you reading now? Why? Because you always have to be growing. I don't ever want to be stale, so you have to aspire to that. Then the inner compulsion. Sometimes you have people that go off to Bible college. Maybe somebody's told them, you know, you, you love the church, and you love Jesus. Why don't you just go into the ministry? And they go off to Bible college, and they get some kind of education, But they never have the fire of the inner compulsion. And so other things occupy their minds and occupy their attention. And so Paul is saying, but if you're the kind of person that there's an inner compulsion in you to do this, that God has placed in your life, and it emits into a willingness to sacrifice in order to be prepared to do the ministry, then you are the kind of person that might be able to qualify for what follows. So you have to get the foundation right. Then you move to the qualifications. And the qualifications are in the category here of of personal integrity. It says that he must be above reproach in verse 2. Do you see that? An overseer must be above reproach. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, you think you're above us. I hope so. I, I hope I'm at least one step ahead of you in our walk with the Lord together. If I'm not ahead of you... If I'm behind you, then I'm not who I ought to be. And I have to be above reproach. Now, thankfully, it doesn't say perfection. But it means that you can't bring a charge against me that would stick, that this is the way he always is. You could bring a charge of committing a sin against me, I'm sure, and it would stick. 
But it's not the way I always am. I'm normally not that way. And so you have to be above reproach. Look at the integrity of his motives, which I've just spoken of. What are the desires of his heart? He aspires and he desires this office. He must be disciplined in order to do it. I've I've told my boys as as they grew up, I've never had to punch a clock. I've never had to have anybody over me. I'm like the Apostle Paul. I work as hard as they do and even beyond. Nobody has. I, I wish you would pay me by the hour. (laughs) <laughs> you just say it's, you, you just work why what what causes that it's the inner compulsion of the ministry this is what God has called me to and there's an inner compulsion a drive that it must be fulfilled so the integrity of motive has to do with this you know that you're called of God and you're willing to discipline yourself in order to constantly work on being a better pastor for the sake of your people and for the glory of Jesus so the integrity in his motives. Now look at the integrity in his marriage. The husband of one wife, verse 2 says. My wife says, divorce is off the table, murder is on. So if I mess up, I'm done. So you, 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 a husband of one wife. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It does not mean one wife at a time. It doesn't mean wives in succession. Or wives all together. This must be addressing something because in the New Testament, polygamy was not an issue. We, we don't have anything in the New Testament where it was a problem in the, Bible, in, the, in the New Testament days. So polygamy was kind of out of vogue in New Testament days. So it wasn't addressed. So then this husband of one wife must not be talking about that. Of what does it speak? Well, literally it is a one woman kind of man. You know what that means? One wife for life. Plain and simple. And not only one wife for life, it means no extras on the side. There's some guys who've been married once, but there are other things going on. And so the integrity in your marriage, this meaning is very plain. One woman life and that would be a woman according to her birth gender by the way God assigns gender it's not a matter of personal preference or how you identify today we got an identity and that is we're sinners and we do stupid things but God is not an impulse in you Young people, listen to me. You may have an urge that is twisted and wrong. That does not mean that's who you are. God has created you. And in the beginning, he created them male and female. I did have a pastor call me one time from Alabama. I didn't know him from Adam's off ox. I was... uh, serving in Tennessee at the time which goes to show you even people from Alabama know that Tennesseans are superior in intellect just had to get that in that game's coming and I just don't even want to see it okay so he calls me and said pastor I know you don't know me I don't really know you but I've heard you give wise counsel I thought to myself he ain't talked to any of my church members obviously I said, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I, I'm a pastor. I've been the pastor of this church for about a year and a half. And one of my deacons, I just found out, transgender. Now, he's the husband of one wife. He or she or whatever. He's never been divorced. What should I do? Well, there you go. What would you say? You know, and that was, that was <clears throat> back in the early 2000. That's been a long time ago, you know. But, yeah. So this guy was in, and everybody loved this person, you know. But there you go. Someone who has defied God's assigned gender. So integrity in marriage, a husband and one wife. Now, you'll notice about the pastor, it's not the wife of one husband. We don't do women pastors. 
Because the Bible does not mention that or approve of it. The Bible has order in the home and order in the church. Now, you daddies, you need to model to your children and to your wife that you also know how to be under authority. And so you model that for them, and if you'll show them by example that you know how to be under authority, it'll help you, it'll help you to lead your family well. I know the argument, well, the family was created first, but let me remind you of this. The church stands last. In heaven, there is no marriage relationship. There is no biological family relationship in heaven. There's only church relationship. And I'm going to remind you that the family <clears throat> is an illustration of the church, the greater, not the other way around. So you need to model in your family what you, to your family, what ought to be in the church. And that will help your family to know how to lead their own families. So there's integrity in marriage and family here. The pastor must be exclusively devoted to his wife not just stayed with her but devoted to her <clears throat> then the integrity in his mind verses 2 and 3 the Bible speaks the fact that he must be careful in decision making sober minded don't make flippant decisions is he impulsive in his thinking and deciding if he is he's a scary individual for a church is he someone that's always swayed by the latest trends and fads and led astray by the thinking of men? If he is, he's not sober-minded. He's not careful in his decision-making. Is he calm in spirit? That self-controlled is the word the Bible uses here. Is he, had, does he have control over his senses? And the Bible speaks of here not being a drunkard. And I think the King James is like not giving to much wine or some such phrase meaning the same thing. Now, beloved, some of y'all have a greater passion for defending yourselves in social drinking than you do with the gospel. You're so worried about you might miss out on something, just fight tooth and nail over it. But let me remind you something here. When the Bible speaks of wine here, it's speaking of that which is drank on a nearly daily basis by people in the New Testament. Do you know why? Because drinking water was hard to come by. And they would take a little bit of fermented wine and pour it into the water in order to use the alcohol to purify the water and kill the germs. The watering down of it, it was like 10 parts water to one part alcohol. So therefore, NyQuil has a higher proof than this wine that's spoken of here. Now, we used to do the same thing in Africa, except we did it with chlorine rather than wine. Because the water will stink and kill you. So that was the practice then. So that's why here it speaks of that. And why Paul later will tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. What, what was he saying? Man, you've got to quit drinking that water out of that well. It's going to kill you, man. You're going to have to put a little mixture and treat that water. It's water treatment plant is all it is. This is why here in the Bible it will speak of something like this. And then the, on the other hand, turn around and condemn strong drink. And you're thinking, what's wrong with the Bible? It's one thing and then another. No, it's not. You just don't understand the difference of what's being spoken of. And so for a pastor to sit there and drink until inebriated off of this kind of wine, he'd have to be there a long time. So here's what we do in, in our little neck of the woods here is Baptists. We don't see the profit of it. And so we think it's bad testimony. And we don't want to lead people the wrong way. We have people in our congregation that are overcoming addiction. We have people in our congregation that are fighting against things in their own family that's destructive. We don't want to set an example before them that all oh, this is okay and lead them down a path of their own destruction. 
I was do the Lord's Supper one time and not at this church because this church is the best church, but another church I pastored that wasn't as good. You know, uh, you know how that works. So some of the deacons are standing around and they say, well, pastor, why don't we use real wine? And I said, well, boys, why don't we? And uh, one of the deacons was standing there and his son was an alcoholic. And he said, I'll tell you why we don't. He said, I would hate to think that my son got addicted to alcohol at the Lord's Supper. Right? There's some logic to this, y'all. There are reasons why. Now, are you going to go to hell for drinking a glass of wine? No, they won't, it won't send you to hell. Now, it might take you out of this world, but it won't send you to hell. So you're not going to go to hell for that. But what you do have to consider is, am I loving people well by doing this? Am I, am I showing love to people and concern for them? People are watching you. They're watching your example. And so am I, am I giving a good example to them? Am I protecting the next generation from addiction? Am I encouraging those who are fighting addiction all the time? Am I encouraging them like, hey, you can walk this road with me. And so I go out to eat with people. I usually get coffee. And that way, y'all walking by, and the guy I'm talking to has got a beer. You can look and see what I'm drinking, and it's coffee. And you don't know what I might have put in there, but it's coffee, right? It's coffee. So integrity of mind. And then integrity and methods, he says, not violent and so on. Don't, don't be a bully. Now, <clears throat> I've wanted to a few times. Don't be a bully. Now, his ministerial ability as well. <clears throat> there are a couple of <clears throat> skills that... A pastor must have. And verse 2 speaks of one of those skills. It says that he is able to teach. There must, he must have a teaching ability. For someone to say, I'm called to the ministry and they can't teach, they're not called to the ministry. It, th this is a teaching ministry. And you have to be able to teach the Bible and teach it well. How do you, how do you teach well? Training plus prayer plus the filling of the Spirit of God equals great teaching. It's not a complicated formula. It is hard to accomplish. But it's not a complicated formula. So teaching ability. Don't ever call a pastor that you like. Find one that can teach. That's what will save your soul. His likability and the fact that he likes butterscotch pie as much as you do is not a reason to call someone to be your pastor. That he happens to show up wearing scarlet and gray is not a reason to call him as your pastor. You, you, can't, you don't do those things. Well, I don't, I, what do you think? I didn't really like him. What does that mean? Can he teach? That's what's going to save your soul. That's what's going to sanctify your soul. That's what's going to build you as a Christian. Is the teaching of the word of God. There is no other method. You're thinking, man, this is not working. It's working. You just ain't working at it, but it's working. So teaching ability. Then he has to have leading ability. Verse 4 and 5 said he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Leading ability. Effective leadership in the home must precede the highest position of leadership in the church. If a man has unruly and defiant children, he's not ready yet. Doesn't mean he never will be, but he's not ready yet. It always baffles me that the churches will call some guy that's 28 years old and has one preschooler. He doesn't know anything yet. I'm telling you, he doesn't know anything. Let, let him get those kids through the teenage years. Let, let him get through there. You'll find out. And you'll find out how to deal with people. I mean, when they're little, you control. When they get a little bigger, you have to coach. And then they get adult, you, you, you're a consultant. And, that, and you have to be able to, to navigate those arenas of life. And that's what you do with people, with church people as well. Some of them are baby Christians. You have to pretty much control. 
You do this, you do that, you do the other. You read this, you read that, you read the other. Then you become a coach. Now you know how to do that. I'm behind you. If you need anything at all, I'll show you how to do it. And you coach. And then they get up and mature and you're more of a consultant. Come to me if you have a question. And you have to know how to deal with people on those levels. And if you've never parented through that, how else, do you, how else will you know? You can't know. And churches will do that all the time. They'll, say, you know, they'll swing the pendulum. Well, our pastor just retired. I'll tell you how we'll get young people. We'll get a young person. As if the age of the pastor is supposed to automatically do your evangelism for you. That's just a dumb idea. And so then you give this young man the opportunity to pastor a church. It's way over his head. And he has no leadership experience. And you wonder why it's a train wreck. There's a reason why. You have done him a great disservice. Because you've given him something over his ability. It doesn't mean that he won't get there. But here's the thing too. I, I, I see this. That whatever your parenting approach is. That's how you'll pastor. I've, just, I've seen that over and over again. However you parent. That's how you will pastor. So if you're expecting a pastor. To kind of run a tight ship at the church. But his kids are in control of the house. That ain't going to happen. You're going to find a pastor that's going to be pushed around by the loudest screamer in the church. So that's how I do. Not. You know how many times I've stepped off this platform after something didn't go well and I thought to myself, I don't think they'll be here that long. Why? Because I just, I'm not putting up with that. It's crazy. Why, why, why don't I put up with it? For your sake. You deserve, by God's grace and working, you deserve to be able to come and be a part of a congregation where there's peace and love for Jesus. And I want you to be able to come to gather on worship service every Sunday and go, man, it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And I want you to be able to serve your church and say, man, it's just good to be able to serve Jesus by serving his people. I want you to love it. I want you to enjoy it. And if you don't pastor well and you don't parent well, you just find out nobody enjoys that home and nobody enjoys that church. So unruly and defiant children. Hey, parents, um, can I, oh, boy, I'm going to step outside the line here just a minute. Can I help you with something? Kids make mistakes. Kids break stuff. They mess up. They jump too far and get stitches. They spill the milk. They try to do something that's uh, past their ability and drop stuff and break it and spill orange juice all over the floor and all kinds of things. Those are no big deal. It ain't nothing. But, but let me tell you what you cannot tolerate. You cannot let your child defy authority. When you tell little Johnny... To do something and little Johnny looks at you like we'll see you let little Johnny's hind end see if you if you do not teach him to be under your authority what do you think he's going to be like when he gets married what do you think he's going to be like on the job what do you think he's going to be like in the community what do you think he's going to, you're trying, see, you're not, you don't just have children, you're training adults now. When those little things come home from the hospital, those little sinners, when they come home, you are now coaching them and moving them and training them toward adulthood. What kind of adult do you want them to be? And you have to move them in that direction. And what I see in parenting day is the opposite. The opposite, it is hovering over those kids so much that they won't let them make a single mistake. No mistakes allowed. You have to have A plus on all your report cards or else. But then let them defy authority. It should be the opposite. Where you don't expect perfection out of them on everything. And you don't go over the game with them just because they threw three incompletions that time. 
you know, and, and so we, we have the, the parenting I see today is we're, we're all about those kind of things. And we'll take them to every specialist to make sure they're doing everything just perfect. But we let them be defiant toward authority. And I would just say, switch it. Just flip it around. That's how you parent well. And so, I, 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 you know, I, I hope that my boys would say that I never painted the line so thick that they felt like they could never mess up. Right? But they didn't defy authority. That, that just ain't going to work. So I, I, it didn't matter because you have to, I wanted them to be a certain kind of young man. So if you're ra- raising your children, some of you are in the process now of raising grandkids, which I'm sorry, I, you know, that's just the way life is these days. But kids will do stupid things and it's fine, but don't let them be defiant. If you're a pastor, don't let your kids be defiant. Don't let them be disrespectful. Now, as a minister, you have to give proper time to your children and to your wife. And giving proper time and attention is just as important as the sermon you preach. You don't want to destroy, Pastor, you don't want to destroy your family on the battlefield of ministry. But I see the opposite error nowadays where people want to sacrifice their ministry on the altar of family. If you're going to pastor a church, ministry requires sacrifices. Get your family ready. You signed up for that. Ministering is not a nine-to-five job. Don't tell your wife, I'll be home every weekend. It doesn't work that way. And so there's a ministerial ability, the ability to teach and to lead. And it requires all of you. It's not part of you that's required. It requires all of you. It's what you are. Now, his spiritual maturity. Let's get these and we want to stop. Spiritual maturity here. Verses 6 and 7. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So you see the interaction here between the pastor and the devil. There's a battle. Some of you are like, hey, good news, our church, it's the same. Pastor and the devil, they're the same. Well, not quite. But there's, there's, you, you need to know your pastor's involved in spiritual warfare in a way that perhaps you are not. What is going on here? The spiritual maturity needs to be demonstrated in a couple of areas of life. In your relationship with Christ, pastor, you must not be a recent convert, not a novice. He can't be a newly planted sapling because he is not going to be able to stand up under the winds that are contrary to him in ministry. But instead, he must be someone that's growing into a mighty oak tree of faith that is not moved and shaken by the schemes of Satan. The pastor never needs to give himself credit for what God does. Sometimes uh, if you're new in ministry, you work really hard and things go well and you think, wow, I did it. That's a dangerous place to be. Things that go well, God did it. Things that don't go well, pastor, you did it. That's how it works. And so there's no place to become conceited as if you have gotten this or to take a position of public profile if you will and say to yourself wow I've really arrived I get to talk to all these people every Sunday and be the center of attention oh beware of that it's a miserable place to be so you want to have a deep relationship with Christ and you want to have a John the Baptist kind of relationship that he must increase and I must decrease constantly then in his reputation in the community says he must be well thought of by outsiders. This one's interesting to me. Well thought of by outsiders. Okay, so if you are the pastor, the preaching pastor of a, a Bible-believing, and I mean real Bible-believing, not just on the, the name, but you really believe the Bible, that it not only is true, but that it regulates your life and regulates your church. If you really are that kind of person... The community hates it. 
They don't like it. But I'm supposed to be well thought of by outsiders. What does that really mean? It means this. They will not agree with anything I do or say. But it means they will respect me because I'm consistent. They know where I stand. They know what I'm going to say. They, they know where I'm going to come from. And so they hate it, but they can't help but respect it. Do you know what the community does not respect? Somebody that waffles on everything. Back and forth, back and forth. Depending on what people think or what people, where the pressure is coming from. And they go back and forth all the time. The lost people do not respect that. And as a pastor, if you are afraid of opposition... And if you're afraid of being confronted, and if you're afraid of people saying ugly things to you, and if you're afraid of those kind of things, don't be a pastor. Because that just comes with the job. What you can do and what you must do is to be consistent in following the Word of God with your life and in your church and in your preaching. Those things you must do. I don't know that there's anybody in the community that would say of me, wow, I really like him. Surprise! I'm not looking for popularity promotion. I, I, I'm not going around. I, I mean, I don't go around with a poll like, hey, do you like me? I'm just wondering. I'm the pastor. I've just really been bothering me, you know. I mean, it's no fun to be disliked. I had one of my Sunday school teachers kind of whining about it the other day. I said, welcome to my life. You know, it's, not, it's no fun. But you know what? You want to be respected. Why? Because that's what the Bible requires. Now, it doesn't mean to be ugly. You don't want to be ugly toward people. It's not that. But you want to be consistent. So... What do we conclude from all of this? Let's, let's bring it to a close because I want us to celebrate the Lord's Supper and then go home. Here's, here's what we conclude. Robert Murray McShane, preacher from a long time ago, said this. It's not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. That's what you want. So what do we do with this? Okay, so what, 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 what would I expect you to do with all this information? A few things. One, you must know that a church can never soar any higher than its perception of the office of the pastor. If you have a low view of the office of the pastor... Your church will be ground bound. You, you cannot excel past it. And so whatever your view of the office of the pastor is, that will be the nature of your church. So you have to ask this question of yourself. Am I contributing to holding up that office? Or do you freely and fearlessly damage it with words and attitudes? Remember this. You, you may not like something that I do personally or something I say personally or whatever you may not like that that's one thing but before you jump all over that remember that my person is connected to and inseparable from right now the office of the pastor of your church so whenever you walk down that road of the personal attack you're also damaging the office of the leadership of your own congregation this has been one of the things that's been troubling for me in our own nation to realize people somehow do not have the ability anymore to disagree with someone without absolutely trying to destroy them and thereby destroy the dignity and authority of the office of the President of the United States. You're cutting your own throat. And so it's the same thing with the church. So a personal issue needs to be handled personally. Handle it personally if it's a personal issue. But be careful about doing that because it, it creates problems for your congregation. The second thing I would say is, are your expectations for the office of the pastor, are they biblical expectations? I want to let you know the biblical expectations are not lower than the one you have personally. They're just different. But aspiring to these things is, is, is a monumental task. 
So what are your expectations? Thirdly, are you easily led by your spiritual leaders, your pastor? Do you, you do realize like when you join this church, you do place yourself under the spiritual authority of its pastor. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Be easy to lead. Don't, don't make everything a, a, a mountain to die on, a hill to die on when it's not worth it. Some things are worth it. Some things are worth digging in saying, this is the way it's got to be. Some things are worth it. I'll tell you what's worth it. The gospel is worth it. Standing by the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture, it's worth it. To, to stand by and uphold the, the doctrine once for all delivered to the saints, it's worth it. To, to stand up for getting the gospel to the nations, that's worth it. But let me tell you what's not worth it. What kind of chairs you sit in. When you wear masks and don't wear masks. Brothers and sisters, it grieves my soul when we have Christians in our nation and yes, even some in our own congregation that they are more concerned about when you wear masks than anything else right now. You know, you, you, you know what it's like being a pastor? You have people call up and say, look, if you're going to make us wear a mask, I'm not coming. The next thing you have somebody turn around and say, if everybody's not wearing a mask, I'm not coming. And so as a pastor, you're just like, what in the world? Here's the solution to that. Get under the authority and leadership of your pastor. Put a smile on your face and just do it. If it is not contradicting the Bible, then it's a non-issue. Don't make an issue out of stupid things. Don't make an issue out of it. Just be easy to lead. Look, I, I, I may not be the best leader in the world, but I've, I've, I've led a few parades. Just take it easy and work with me, people. Number four, do you earnestly and daily pray for your pastor to fulfill these lofty requirements? Take this chapter and pray through it. I mean, you may have to take it in sections or take this sermon in three sections and pray, okay, I'm going to pray for the personal integrity of my pastor. I'm going to pray for his ministerial ability. I'm going to pray for his spiritual maturity. And pray. Pray for your pastor in that way. Pray for your pastoral staff. God knows they need it more than I do. Number five, are you one who brings accusations or are you one who provides intercession? choose and then this uh, some of uh, our folks today are, are, are will hear this and they're, they're homebound members and some of them will watch this later at 6.30 and others will hear it by CD or whatever means they're using and I would say to those who are homebound members that our need for their prayer ministry is greater in these days than they've ever been if you're one of those homebound and not able to be here with us and gather with us, I know you miss it and we miss you. But your job now is to intercede. Your job now is to pray. Your job is to pray constantly, especially if you have that kind of time to be able to do so. And I would say this, especially pray for me. Pray according to this passage of Scripture Pray for me on a regular basis. You may not be able to do it daily, but pick a day. Pick Monday. Pick Saturday. I don't care which day you want to pick, but pick a day. And be sure you pray for your pastor and pastoral staff. Now, we come to the end of this section of Scripture. And it's just qualifications for pastor. I want to encourage you and exhort you, church, to never compromise these in any way. Do without until you find one that aspires to these things. Some of these qualifications, they're just a yes or no. Either you're that or you're not. Others of them, you see they're matters of growth. But you need to be sure that you see somebody that's growing in these areas and has a desire to grow in them in order to be the pastor of this church. Other churches, maybe they have different ideas about it, but our church is a biblically-centered church, and we do things according to the Bible. Don't ever change that. If you'll do that, God's blessing will be on you if you'll stand by the Word of God. Just do it. 
Now, we want to do this. I want to offer uh, some prayer. And while I'm praying, um, our deacons are going to be coming. Brother Terry is going to be leading them. And uh, while I'm praying, even then, they're going to be uncovering the table. And uh, we're going to switch now from the Word of God to the Word of God illustrated in the Lord's Supper. So, if you would, uh, let me offer uh, uh, some prayer. Brother Terry, you all can come on and be getting ready. And uh, it's okay if you're moving around while I'm praying. It's, it'll be fine. God knows how to hit a moving target. And so would you, uh, congregation, while they're doing that and preparing, uh, would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful that you have commanded your servants to form themselves into local churches. And Lord, that you have provided for the upbuilding and strengthening and edification of your church in holiness and in love. Lord, we come to you in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper because we adore Jesus. He instituted this supper, a memorial to his dying love for us. And Lord, we pray that as we enter into the observance of it, that we would remember, remember his death for us on the cross in our place because of our sinfulness. Lord, would you touch our hearts and lives if we are hiding secret sin? We do not want to receive these elements with dirty hands. And so we're asking for the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus again in our lives. Would you help us, Lord, to own up to that which we have done wrongly, where we have disobeyed your word, where we have ignored it or just broken it and sinned against you? Lord, if we are making a habit of resisting your precepts and your commands, would you reveal that to us? And Lord, may we be able to say when we take this supper that I no longer do that, Lord, by your power and strength. Lord, may the vision of Jesus crucified come to our minds. May we have a sense of his dying love for us and may it powerfully motivate us. And Lord, may we have no question whatsoever that we're one of those whom you have chosen for this very feast. Holy Spirit, we ask you to join your church. Be as close as you will. May the Spirit of Christ be working in us as we observe this. We would pray according to the psalmist, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd. Carry them forever. Lord, other churches are meeting in our community today and are observing or have observed this. And we ask your blessing that they would flourish. For those that have departed from the verity of Scripture, we pray for conviction in their lives even as they participate in this. For those, Lord, who have taken stances contrary to the Word of God, we pray conviction in their lives. May you return them to biblical-oriented and biblical, biblically faithful congregations who exist solely for the glory of Jesus. And may you use them to see many souls come into the kingdom and come to know you. Lord, the people that have crowded into this very building today, may you bless their lives. Lord, them that are taking of this, those that partake of it, being clothed with salvation, would you make them joyful? Father, you have brought us here so that we may say that we love your salvation. And that we may say, let the Lord be magnified. We pray, Father, that as we receive these elements, that we would also be careful to walk in Christ and Lord as we are here and imperfectly following you may we remember that this is a foretaste of glory divine that the day will come and we will be seated 
at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we with tears will rejoice that we made the journey, however hard it was, however difficult, however many times we may have failed. But yet we have made it to the city. And we sit around the table with you. And the cup that you said that you would drink of no more until that day, you raise it before us and call us your friends. Lord, help us to have a vision of that as we partake of this today. And may it excite our hearts to love you deeply and to follow you closely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.